0: Well, maybe you've heard people say, or maybe you've said it or thought it yourself, that the Bible is boring. It's just an ancient document, thousands of years old, it's so dry, why would, why would you want to read that? It just puts you to sleep. But I wonder if such people have actually read the Bible. I know those who are spiritually dead, the Bible will never come alive at them, Never, will, never will jump out at them, never will grab their heart. But even for such people, if they would read the Bible, I I still can't see how they would find it boring because it's filled with so many of these amazing and gripping and, and thrilling stories. And for us who have believed and have been made alive, we know they're more than just stories. The Bible isn't just story time. This is God's Word written inspired for your salvation and edification, and there's a rich spiritual purpose behind every story of the Bible. But at the same time, some of these stories in the Bible read like page turners and especially true for the life of Jesus. There's nothing so enthralling like seeing the Son and the Savior in action on earth. There's a surprise around every corner, and, and the story we have before us today is no exception. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We find a relatively short story, but you definitely can't call it boring. There's it all the elements of an intriguing story that even those in the world would love. And the passage really reads like an ancient soap opera. And growing up, my mom was all into soap operas. And thankfully, she never made me watch them. I always run out of the room when they started. But I do remember that very annoying opening line of the one she always watched. You probably know it. Like sands through the hourglass. (laughs) So are the days of our lives. If the makers of that show only knew how true that statement was, And maybe some of the characters in the show would seek God or something, because life is quite fleeting. But that wouldn't be good for ratings, so what are all the soap operas about? Well, intrigue, romance, betrayal, adultery, incest, murder, deceit, backstabbing, deception. And that's just before the first commercial break. And it may surprise you, though, but a lot of the stories of the Bible are just like that. The Bible contains stories full of intrigue and deceit, murder and adultery, backstabbing, and betrayal. Now, of course, the difference is that the Bible doesn't glorify the wickedness that we see in soap operas. On TV today, immorality, adultery, all that stuff, it's it's glorified, it's celebrated, it's a good, fun thing. In the Bible, it's always condemned. Another difference is that such stories in the Bible, although they are quite entertaining, they're not given for your entertainment. Rather, these stories are given as they contain truth, God's truth, truth that you need to live on, These narratives form a special way of teaching you who God is, what God has done, what is his plan, what it means for you, and the story we're going to be studying today is just like that. It's a very intriguing story. It has incest, adultery, murder. It's the story of the death of John the Baptist. Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived, and this story is about him. And that's telling you something because in Mark's entire gospel, this is the only story that doesn't feature Jesus as the main character. That's how important John was. And you'll see by the end how important his death was as well. The story really tells itself, so it doesn't need any further introduction. But we will discover more than a story here as the characters leave behind several important lessons that are still relevant to your life. A couple thousand years later. These stories are not not meant to be skimmed over or skipped over, but reflected on so as to see God and his plan better. And so that's what we're going to do today. We have Mark chapter 6, verses 14, all the way through verse 32. And do the length. We'll just read it as we go, trying to explain and explore this account of John's death. It really does read like a soap opera episode. So with that in mind, let me give you these eight scenes in the episode of John's death. We'll just follow along eight scenes in the episode of John's death. And it starts off with, number one, the musings of a multitude. The musings of a multitude. The story begins very abruptly. Look at verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is... Elijah, and others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Like I said, it starts off abruptly. You may not know what's going on; maybe a little lost. Well, it starts off in verse 14. King Herod and he's he's, he's hearing something. A news flash is brought to the king's attention, and, and what's he hearing? Well, verse 14 says he's hearing about a person. His name had become well known. It's talking about. Jesus, his fame was spreading and news was finally reaching the king's ears. And this points us back to the previous passage, which we looked at last week, which was the preaching mission of the twelve. After a year and change of ministry, Jesus finally multiplies himself. And for the first time, he sends out the twelve to preach and teach on his behalf. So they go out. They're making Christ's name known. And it's through their ministry that the news of Jesus finally makes its way into the city of Tiberias. And that's the city where Herod lived. That's also probably why Jesus avoided it. Herod paid little attention to the happenings of the Jews, except when they could cause trouble, which is probably why he's perking up to this news about Jesus. Maybe he's heard about Jesus before, he didn't really care. But now, with the ministry of the Twelve, it's like everyone in Palestine is talking about Jesus. It's even making its way into the king's court in Tiberias, this Jesus guy is getting popular, and that's bad news for Herod. Now, speaking of Herod, before we continue, you could probably use some background on him. It can get a little confusing, especially since there are four different people in the New Testament who go by the name Herod. And they're different. So let's let's explain that. That's because Herod, by the way, it's the name of a dynasty, not just a person. And i all started with Herod the Great ruler of all Palestine from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Remember, this was during the Roman Empire, so he wasn't an independent king. He was a vassal king. This was Rome's territory. He was on a leash, but they gave him a long leash. He was free to rule, free to build, free to terrorize. And that's what he did. Herod the Great killed most of his own family members to guard his throne. So it doesn't really surprise us to find Herod slaughtering all of the infants in an entire city in an attempt to kill the newborn Messiah. That was Herod the Great, not so great. Well, after his death, Palestine was divided into four parts and given to his sons. And that brings us to the Herod we see in Mark chapter 6. This guy is named Herod Antipas, and he's also known as Herod the Tetrarch, which means ruler of a fourth. His territory was the region of Galilee and Perea, which is just northeast of the Dead Sea. And Antipas, he had a very long reign from 4 B.C. all the way to 39 A.D. And all the Herods, they weren't Jews by birth or or Edomites, what they were called. But Herod Antipas, this guy, he claimed to have converted to Judaism. But he wasn't that serious. He wasn't that serious about it. For example, he built the capital city, Tiberias, on top of a graveyard which pretty much made the entire city unclean to any Jew, and they wouldn't go there. That's a little background about this guy. He's Herod and Tippus. We'll see more about him later. But for now, verse 14, the focus is on what he hears. Specifically, he's hearing about Jesus, and even more specifically, about these miraculous powers that are at work in him. Through Jesus and the apostles, the miraculous nature of Christ's ministry was becoming well-known. It was undeniable to all the people. Miracles were taking place. So how do you explain that? What's happening? Well, the people in Herod's court posed a few suggestions. Some said it was John the Baptist. He's back from the dead. Others said this Jesus, maybe he's Elijah. That's how you explain the powers. Or maybe he's one of the great prophets of old. These answers were all given to explain the clearly supernatural nature of Christ's ministry. Everyone knew God's power was at work. They're just trying to explain it, what's taking place. Some of these people had surprisingly high estimates of the power of Jesus and the identity of Jesus. He's a great prophet, and he was a great prophet. But their estimates weren't high enough. None of them suggested he was the Messiah, let alone the Son of God. But we really want to know, not what these other people think, what does Herod think about this Jesus guy? We find that in verse 16. Look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. This is the second scene the remorse of a king. Number two, the remorse of a king. The guilt and the remorse Herod felt just oozes out of this statement. Not once, but every time someone came and told them about Jesus, it's pictured like he kept saying, no, it's John. John is back. John's risen from the dead. He's he's back again. And he emphasizes his hand in John's death. Emphatic, he says, John, whom I beheaded, is back. Herod is torturing himself over what happened. He can't get out of his mind the picture of John's head on a platter, which is what we're going to see later. But if John did rise from the dead, then Herod's worst nightmare is realized because the people were outraged when John was executed. And if John is back, then it's only a matter of time before they rally around him. There's going to be an uprising. There's going to be a revolt. And that's the worst possible scenario for Herod because like his father, he's a vassal ruler. He answers to Rome. And if he can't control his territory, well, then it's going to be his head on a platter. So he's afraid, he's paranoid, he's anxious over Jesus, this news about Jesus. He thinks it's got to be John back from the dead. That's how you explain these miraculous powers. Now, speaking of John, the last we heard of John was way back in chapter 1 of Mark, where John gets arrested. And we don't know anything. We just says John got arrested. We don't know who arrested him. We don't know why. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know what happened next. It's been a year, and we don't know anything. But now we're finally being given the backstory of John's arrest, and it's quite a drama. And next we find that the famous line is true. The hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And we come to find that John's arrest and his death can be traced back to a very scorned woman who dishes it out herself. And so we see the third scene now, the scorn of a woman. Thirdly, the scorn of a woman. Look at verse 17. For Herod himself had sent, and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. You stop there. Here we see the plot getting thicker. This is some of that intrigue I was telling you about. There's a lot in this story. Last we heard of John, he got arrested. Now we're finding out why the circumstances of his arrest. And why was John arrested? Well, Matthew tells us, of course, one of the reasons is because John was getting very, very popular. Before Jesus came on the scene, John was way more popular. And to Herod, that's bad news. Anyone with that much popularity and power and influence could be a threat. So that's, of course, one reason why he was arrested. But we learn more so that there's something personal. There was a personal reason behind John's arrest. The real motive was his wife Herodias. Enter Herodias onto the scene. Let me tell you about her. Let me tell you about this situation. Let's go back to Herod the Great. Remember the father? He had ten wives and lots of kids. He killed most of his own kids. But a couple survived. Let me tell you about three of his sons. They all had Herod the Great as their father. They all had different mothers, but so they were all half-brothers. One of them was Herod and Tippus. That's the guy in our story. Another one was Aristobulus. Another one was Herod Philip I. So three guys. And Aristobulus, he had a daughter, and his daughter was named Herodias. And that's the girl we see right here, Herodias. And when she got a little bit older, she married Herod Philip I. So if you're kind of keeping track, that means Herod Philip I married his niece. She is his brother's daughter. So it, already that's, you know, it's a very twisted. The Herod dynasty is so twisted, and it does. it only gets worse. Now, Herod Philip I, he wasn't in power. He had no position of power. He was disinherited by Herod the Great, which is better than being killed. So at least he was left alive. But him and his wife Herodias, they lived in Rome as private citizens, just living out their days. Well, one day Herod and Tippus visited Rome, and he visited his brother Philip. And during that visit, he became infatuated with Philip's wife Herodias. And at the same time, Herodias, she wasn't so happy with just sitting around as a citizen. She wanted to be a queen. And so the two of them agreed to ditch their spouses and marry one another. So Herodias left Philip behind in Rome and Herod and Tippus divorced his wife. As a side note, that was not the best move because his first wife was the daughter of the Nabataean king, the Nabataeans. That's like the kingdom right next to Herod's territory. And so he divorced. That was a, a, a political marriage. And when he divorced that daughter, you think that made them very happy. The Nabataeans, that neighboring kingdom. They're very happy that the king of the neighboring community just sent their daughter away. And so years later, the Nabataeans, they would assemble an army and they would attack Herod in retribution for this divorce. And they dealt him a stunning and humiliating military defeat. They, they wiped out his entire army and Herod had to be saved by the Romans. But anyway, in our story, that's how we come to see Herodias married to Antipas, and why you should care. I know it's quite the soap opera, but if you're tracking, that means the marriage between Herodias and Antipas is immoral on two fronts. First, Herodias was also Antipas' niece, He is marrying his niece. She's still the brother of his other brother, Aristobulus. So first off, it's incest. This is his niece. Secondly, at the time, she was married to his other brother. So it's adultery. You're taking your brother's wife. And the Old Testament clearly forbids both incest and adultery. And guess what? John the Baptist let them know that. He told them repeatedly that they were sinning before God. This is the king and queen. He told them, you're sinning before God. Your marriage is not lawful. John didn't care, as you can tell. He was a fearless prophet, and it was the truth, and the truth had to be spoken, and he let him know. He didn't fear the king. He feared God more than the king, and so he spoke the truth. But how do you think Herodias, in particular, the, the woman, how do you think she received that message, that she was an adulteress? That their marriage was illegitimate and that she did not belong in power. Think she was very happy with that? And if Antipas, her husband, actually listened to John, then what does that mean for her? She goes back to being a commoner. So are you surprised to learn that of all people in this story, it's really Herodias, the wife who really hates John here. She hates John the Baptist. And so, like it says verse 19, she had a grudge against him. Literally, it says she had it in for him. This is animosity. This is an undying hatred. Instead of repenting before God and doing the right thing, she turns on the messenger and she decides he needs to be killed. Imprisonment is not enough to silence John. He must die. One commentator aptly puts, quote, Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist, end quote. But she couldn't do it right away. Herodias knew she had to bide her time. She had to wait for the right opportunity because, surprisingly, John was being protected by Herod. Look at verse 19 again. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. You're probably a little bit confused, like, what's going on? Why is Herod keeping John safe, keeping John alive? Doesn't Herod hate John too? What's going on? But what we see to come into play, and by the way, this is number four, the fear of a baptizer, I forgot to mention, the fourth scene, the fear of a baptizer. But what we see come into play is, is the little, tiny, last remaining bit of Herod's conscience. That's all he got left. Herod was an extremely wicked man, like all the Herods. They're not good guys. But the little sliver of a conscience he has left is telling him it, it's wrong to kill John. It would be wrong to kill John. Why? Because he's a holy man. He's a righteous man. You see, the same strange sort of double standard with people in the mafia, at least according to the stories. You know, they're okay with killing all sorts of people. They have no problem killing all sorts of people, but they won't touch a nun or a priest because they feel like if they did that, it would cross the line. They can't touch a holy man. It would really make them feel guilty, and God would really be upset with them. I mean, forget all the other people they kill, but they can't touch a holy person. And Herod shares the same kind of superstitious belief. Now, Herod also possesses this strange fascination with John. Herod would call John to himself, or he would visit him in prison, and John would preach at him. Again, John is the type of fearless prophet. He doesn't care. He's going to speak the truth to whoever is listening. It's like a lion, even in captivity. If you go in the cage, he's going to attack. And John pounced. We even get the impression that John evangelized Herod. He told him about repentance and the coming kingdom of God and that Herod needed to get himself right with God and and do what was right. And this, it says, this perplexed Herod. The word means to disturb, to be at a loss. He he had no response. What's he going to say? It was a very disturbing message to Herod. You're a sinner. You have done wrong before God. God is righteous. You are not. God is king. You're not king. And you need to repent and seek him to be forgiven and acknowledge him as the real king. To a king like Herod, that's a disturbing message. But what could he say? Herod claimed to convert to Judaism. And here's this guy, John, whom all the Jews regard as a true prophet. So what's he going to say? This is a prophet. What do you say to that? But it's not like he was going to change. Herod knows that if he listens to John and submits to God, it will cost him way too much. His power, his pleasure, his prestige. And he can't give that up. But still, just like creatures of the night are attracted to light, Herod is strangely attracted to his message. He doesn't want to live in the light. He's more comfortable living in the darkness, but the light draws him in. And this is the little bit of conscience he has left at work. The voice inside is telling him that John is right. Herod, you know there's a God. You know he's righteous. You know you're not righteous. And you know you need to repent. You need to change. You need to seek forgiveness or else. But Herod was not ready to change. His conscience eats away at him, but for now, he's content Just leave John in prison. I'll keep him alive. Otherwise, I'll feel really guilty. Keep him alive. Just leave him there. But that's about to change. We have a change of scenery. Number five, the opportunity of a lifetime. Fifth scene here, the opportunity of a lifetime. Look at verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to her, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. You we see a change of scene to a party? Herod's throwing a huge banquet for some very esteemed guests. His top civil officers are there. His top military officers are there. And then a bunch of rich guys are there. But understand, this is not your after-church potluck party. The Romans and the Herods were known for throwing extremely immoral stag parties. Women were left at home. The alcohol is flowing. It's not long before everyone there is drunk. The language is vile. There's nothing edifying about the conversation. And female dancers were brought in. There's nothing edifying about the entertainment. Usually the women brought in for these occasions were the lowest of the low, which makes what happens next all the more surprising that Herodias' daughter herself comes in and dances. This girl's name was Salome. She would be in her mid-teens. And remember, Herodias... This is Herod, Herod Antipas's wife, but she's also his niece, which makes Siloam, I guess you'd say, his grandniece, as if this wasn't sick and twisted enough. She comes in and dances before them. She's the entertainment. Now, Scripture, rightfully and thankfully, presents this in a tasteful manner without saying anything that would stumble you, and I'm going to do the same. You don't need to talk about this. But let's just say, this wasn't your little daughter's ballet rehearsal. It's pretty clear, verse 22, this was sensual dancing, and it pleased Herod and his guests. They love this immoral, inappropriate entertainment. And Herod now, surely in a half-drunken stupor, wants to impress his guests, so he presents her with the opportunity of a lifetime. He gives her a blank check. He's so pleased and wants to so impress them that he says, What do you want? Ask me anything. It's yours. And it doesn't seem like she believes at first, so he says it again, and he gives her a vow, a promise. I swear, anything you want, up to half my kingdom. And that's a real empty promise, because Herod didn't have half a kingdom to give away. Remember, Rome owned everything, and they would not let him depart with a single parcel of ground. But he's only concerned with puffing himself up and making himself look cool in front of his guy friends. Still, though, he could have given her a lot great wealth, maybe a city to run, a position in the kingdom, a statue, a building. She could have had a lot. She could have asked for a lot. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. And if that were you, what would you ask for? Anything you want, what would you ask for? For me, it's pretty obvious. I'll take half the kingdom. Why are you going to settle for anything less? I'll take what as much as I can get. But further down the twisted rabbit hole we go as we learn now that Herodias' daughter, wasn't acting alone. And this unexpected dance of hers was not so unexpected, but it was orchestrated by someone else with an agenda who is now going to cash in on Herod's rash promise. This leads to scene number six, the request of a reprobate. The request of a reprobate, verse 24 Speaking of the daughter, she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? I'll stop there. This is Siloam speaking. And you're, you're thinking, well, what's wrong? Don't you want anything? What do you want? But you see, she was doing her mother's bidding. This was all a ploy. Herodias had set this entire thing up. She knew this would be the perfect time to take advantage of her husband's ego before his guests, and she was willing to sacrifice her daughter's purity to do so. Herod's gracious offer was probably more than she was banking on, but it was more than enough to get what she wanted. And what she want? Siloam says, What shall I ask for? And Herodias responds, verse 24, without hesitation, the head of John the Baptist. To Herodias, this was a no brainer, this was a long time coming. She had been nursing this hatred for John for over a year, like a snake waiting for the right time to strike her prey. And the fact that her response was this immediate and this definite shows how much John had pricked her conscience and really disturbed her. But Herodias' conscience had died a long time ago. She was not going to repent. So the only recourse was to kill the person who kept making her feel bad. And bringing up her sin. And if John is like Elijah, that makes now Herodias like Jezebel, the king's wife. Well, her daughter complies. Look at verse 25. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is a right here, right now request. No time is given for John to escape. No time is given for Herod to change his mind. He has to do this at once. And for good measure, Salome, the daughter, she adds all on her own this little detail, and we want it on a platter, as if it's the next entree in the meal. But only John's head would suffice as evidence that Herodias' wishes had been carried out. This is a good place to mention that John was in the building. We know from elsewhere that John was imprisoned in the city of Machaerus, which is on the very northeastern tip of the Dead Sea. And at that location, Herod had built an all-in-one resort, part dungeon, part prison, part fortress, part palace. And it was there that this banquet was taking place. Herodias must have taken this into account, because normally they lived in Tiberias, so she's probably thinking, I'm not going home without John's head with me so Herod has been presented our question is what's he going to do so now what's Herod going to do verse 26 and although the king was very sorry yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests he was unwilling to refuse her this is the scene number seven the death of a conscience the death of a conscience. Herod immediately knew he had walked into a trap. He had been outwitted by his wife. But he was very sorry at the request. Extremely sorrowful, it says, because he still knows it's wrong to kill John. John is righteous. John has done nothing wrong. You kill him, it's going to cause trouble. This is the last-ditch effort of John's con- or Herod's conscience telling him, you don't want to do this. Find a way out. But then the voice of his flesh starts to speak. What are your guests going to think? What of your reputation? If you go back on your vow, they won't respect you as a leader. They're going to tell other people. They're going to tell Rome that you're a feeble and weak ruler. You can't be made a fool in front of his guests. Now, Herod had a way out. He could have stood up for what was right. He could have even appeared just in front of his guests. He could have told Siloam, I made you a a promise for a gift, not a crime. He should have stood for righteousness, even if it did cost him his reputation. But Herod was not righteous. It was a short struggle. And in the end, his concern for himself and his own glory was far greater than his concern for doing what was right. Like Judas, his sorrow was not unto repentance. And in an empty grief, he ordered John's death. Verse 27. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. This is the final scene. The death of a prophet. The death of a prophet. Let's keep reading. He went out, had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. I mean, just think, like Jesus said, apart from himself, John was the greatest man who ever lived and he meets his end due to a petty wager at a dinner party. The greatest man, the greatest prophet, killed by evildoers. John's disciples come, they had access to him in prison. Here they take away his headless body. Presumably, Herodias kept the head. Matthew 14 12 adds that after this, John's disciples, they went to Jesus and they reported to Jesus everything that had happened. And that's actually quite significant for after that time, John's disciples in Palestine become Christ's disciples. But that's it. That's the end of the story. That's how it ends. There's no happy ending. It starts suddenly, it ends suddenly. It's a tragedy. In many respects, this is just a sad, depressing story. I mean, who wants to hear about the bad guys winning? That's what happens at this point. They win, John's dead. It's like watching a good movie with a terrible ending. just so unsatisfying. You wish it was different, but it's not. This ending was part of God's plan. And it was inspired and written here for your learning. For like some good movies, underneath the story, there are some lessons being taught. And that's what we have taking place here. After all, Mark, he didn't have to tell us about John's death. He didn't have to include this. Why is this here? Why are we hearing about this story? And we find that there are many important lessons behind this story. And we want to reflect on some of these now. The little time we have left, I want to give you three. Three lessons from this episode of John's death that you really need to hear. Three lessons from the episode of John's death. The first is a lesson about conscience. A lesson about conscience. It comes from Herod as a cautionary tale. Beware of letting your conscience die. Beware of killing your conscience. What is a conscience? Your conscience is a God-given mechanism within all people, enabling them to know right from wrong. And after the fall, it's not perfect, but you'd be far worse off without it. And how does a conscience die? Oftentimes, just by doing nothing. Just do nothing. You know right from wrong. You know what not to do. You know what the right thing to do is. But you do nothing. You don't stop yourself from going further down the path of darkness. You don't repent. You don't turn back. You you do nothing. And you ignore the voice of truth. And keep in mind, Herod was a guy who could listen to sermons all day long. He could hear the truth all day long. He heard the truth, but he wasn't going to act on it. Sometimes he even felt conviction. He felt sorry sometimes. But it wasn't enough because it wasn't unto repentance and change. He was not going to change his life. What happens when you sin? You sin. Anytime, any sin. doesn't matter. What happens? You feel guilty. And that's on purpose. That's a good thing. Guilt is a built-in consequence of sin designed by God. And it's a good thing because it's meant to drive you to God in repentance for forgiveness, God can take away that guilt and give you peace. That's by design. But those in the world, they don't want to repent because they don't want to give up their sin. But they also don't want this nagging guilt. So what do they do? Well, you've got to silence that voice. They take measures to ignore their conscience, to kill that voice inside telling them, this is wrong, you're doing wrong. This is how they become hardened in sin. And pretty soon, they can't hear a voice at all. It no longer feels bad to sin. That is a very dangerous place to be. But what happens when that convicting voice of righteousness, is not coming from inside, but from outside, but from another person? Well, then you've got to silence them as well. And this is how those like Herodias will even resort to murder, to silence those outside voices. The lesson is to beware this end. Beware becoming like this. What can you do? Stay sensitive to sin. You need to cherish God more than your sin. The only one who can take away your guilt is Jesus, who died on the cross and rose from the dead for your forgiveness, We're not perfect. We will sin. There's no excuse, but nonetheless, sin and guilt will be ours. But Christ can deal with that for you if you turn to him in repentance and faith. He is the answer. I take it for most of you. You come to church all the time. You listen to sermons all the time. But don't turn away from what you hear. Do you act on every sermon you listen to? You must not be merely hearers of the word but those who are doers also. And today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart against him. Herod didn't take that advice. He turned away and eventually sided with silencing all voices of conviction. And by the next time we see this Herod in Scripture, his conscience is gone. Not to be found. Luke chapter 23, during the crucifixion, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod and Herod is excited because he's wanted to see Jesus for a long time. And you're thinking, well, does he want to hear the truth? Does he want to seek the Lord? Does he want to repent? No, he just he wants to see a miracle. Like Jesus is a circus sideshow to him. And Jesus, he doesn't say a single word to Herod. Not a single word. Yet Christ's voice of silence speaks louder than words. And Herod knew, once again, he was dealing with someone more righteous than himself. And so what did Herod do? Well, frustrated Herod and his men mocked Jesus. They clothed him in a king's robe. And once again, he sent him off to his death. And we find that what happened to John now happens to Jesus. And that's actually the second lesson from this passage, what you are meant to derive. Here's the second lesson, the lesson about Jesus. Jesus. There's another reason that Mark tells us this story about John the Baptist. Remember, what was John's function? His function was a forerunner. He was a forerunner. He came before the Messiah. He prepared the way for the Messiah. And that was true with John's life. And that was true with John's death. The story of John's death foreshadows and highlights how Jesus will be treated and killed. By the same people. Notice all the parallels between the death of John and the death of Jesus. Let me just read this for you, but follow along. John was arrested and handed over. Jesus was arrested and handed over. John encountered Herod, a reluctant political ruler who was fascinated by him. Jesus encountered Pilate, a reluctant political ruler who was fascinated by him. John's real enemy was Herodias a hardened sinner who plotted his death behind the scenes. Christ's real enemy was the Jewish leaders, hardened sinners who plotted his death behind the scenes. John had Herodias who sought an opportune time to carry out her murderous plan. And Jesus had Judas who sought an opportune time to carry out his murderous plan. Herod was caught off guard by the plot to kill Jesus. Pilate was caught off guard by the plot to crucify Jesus. But in the end, Herod gave in to political pressure and in the end, Pilate gave in to political pressure. And we find that what they did to the forerunner is what they will do to the Messiah. John went before Jesus in life and he went before him in death. This is how Israel treats all of its prophets. They killed the prophets. They killed the greatest prophet John, and what do you think they're going to do to the son himself? But we're not quite done. Because if this is how they treated John, this is how they treated Jesus, where do you think you fit in to that equation if you are his disciple? This is actually the third and main lesson from our text. It's a lesson about discipleship. A lesson about discipleship. We get this lesson from verses 30 through 32. Look there one last time, the very end. We didn't read these yet. Look at verse 30. Right after the story of John's death, it says, verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there are many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. And you're probably confused. You're probably wondering, okay, what does that have to do with the death of John? And the answer is, a whole lot. And let me show you. And look, Just look at Mark, Mark chapter 6 overall. What passage did we study last week? Well, verses 7 through 13, which was telling us about the first discipleship mission of the Twelve. Jesus takes the Twelve sends them out to preach, and they go. They're on the mission. And how, how does it go? How does the mission end? Well, we don't know. We don't hear about the end of that mission until way down in verse 30. But did you notice, sandwiched in between this account of the first discipleship mission and is the story of John's death. You see that? Isn't that a little odd to you? Why didn't Mark just tell us about the mission of the disciples and how it ended, and then later tell us about The death of John. Why is he sandwiching the death of John in between this mission of the disciples? Well, it's not on accident. Mark does this on purpose. He's done this before, this little sandwich technique. It's a story within a story. He uses it as a literary technique. And let me just bottom line tell you what it means the meat interprets the bread. This is a sandwich. You have the two loaves on the outside and the meat in the middle. The story that comes in the middle tells you what's going on with the story that comes on the outside. You've seen it before. We'll see it again in Mark. And so just bottom line, what does that mean for our story here? Just you you tell me. What do you think Mark is trying to say by sandwiching the first mission of discipleship with the death of John the Baptist? You see, we already learned that all disciples, that includes you and me, can expect the same rejection Jesus faced. And now we are learning all the more so that disciples like you and me can expect the same persecution that John faced. What happens to John here casts a shadow over the entire discipleship mission, theirs and ours. If you're still not clear, Jesus himself said it personally. He said in Matthew 10, verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. In John chapter 15, verse 20, he said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This was true. The 12 disciples later in life, they would all go to their death. For faith in Jesus. Except, ironically, the Apostle John. But you're probably wondering, wait, is Mark saying that if we are to be Christ's disciples, we have to die? Is he saying that? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying, you might. You ever think about that? Have you ever really thought about that? That you might? He's saying, you must be ready and willing to do so. If you're a real disciple, the only kind of disciple Jesus is interested in is the one who values him more than life itself. You might be thinking, what's the big deal here? Why is this so serious? Like, why would you have to die for Jesus? Well, the same reason as John. By your very existence, if you're like Christ, you represent to those in the world that outer voice of conscience convicting them of their sin. Now, of course, as Christians, we want to share the good news with people. Yes, you've sinned, but the good news is you can be forgiven, you can be saved and restored, redeemed by Christ. There's a good message here. If you believe in Him, you can be saved, but they don't want that. They want their sin, and therefore, they want you to be quiet. They want you to go away. It's not long before they will come after you, and just based on what you represent, They want your voice silenced. So knowing this, do you still want to sign up for following Jesus? You still want this whole salvation thing? Do you have to die to follow Jesus? No. No, not necessarily. In fact, most of us Americans, we won't. We won't. But you do have to die to self. You do have to die to self. Which means this life isn't about you anymore. And you do have to pick up your cross, which represents what? Suffering and death. Only then are you ready to truly follow Jesus. This sounds serious. Well, it is serious. But we're not interested in making phony, superficial, fair weather disciples, and neither is the Lord. Such people need not apply. The Lord is interested in one thing, and there's only one kind of faith that saves. They sold out faith and a commitment to follow Him wherever the path goes, even if you end up like John. You okay with that? You're going to be on that path even if it takes you where it took John? All the blessings of eternal life can be yours, but let this story of John's death force you To count the cost. Eternal life is free. And you get everything. Peace, reconciliation, redemption, adoption, forgiveness, justification, glorification. You get it all. It's free. But there's a cost. And the cost is your life. Is it worth it? Of course it's worth it. That's a no-brainer. It's worth it. But you just need to make certain that you are serious about following the Lord. Because there's a reason Jesus said, The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are only a few who find it. You need to make certain you're on that path. Mark 8.35, Jesus said, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we bow, we, we come before you sometimes bewildered by these passages of scripture. Why is this here such a sometimes sad, depressing story? Seeming defeat, John defeated the evil win. The evildoers win in this story, Lord. And we wonder why. We wonder what, what does this mean for us? Lord, we reflect on this story, we reflect on on the victory in Jesus, even though Death will win in a sense. Evildoers win here and now. In Christ, there is victory. In Christ, there is resurrection. In Christ, there is eternal life. And John was not defeated. John will rise again and share the blessings of eternal life, whereas the evildoers will be vanquished in the end. We take comfort in knowing that in the end, Lord, evil does not win the day with you. You are good and you win the day. We rejoice in the victory Christ won But at the same time, Lord, we reflect on what this story means for us today. Like John, Jesus shared that fate, dying, suffering for glory. And we as his disciples, we're promised persecution. They persecuted him, they will persecute us. We were promised the the crown, but the cross comes before the crown. I pray that all of us here count that cost. We are ready, we are willing, and you are worth it. But you have to change our hearts. Only those who are born again will sign up for that. It is a high cost. But get us serious. Serious about discipleship. This life is serious. It's not just a fun and game. There can be times for entertainment, Lord. But like the story before us, there's a time when things must get serious. And that time is now. Are we serious about following you, following the Lord, living for you? Do you believe or not? My prayer is that all of us here do. We count the cost and get on the road. The narrow path. It leads to life. It goes to the cross first, but we await the crown again, Lord. We thank you for this. I pray the conviction helps our conscience stay alive, that we turn from sin and turn to you toward every path, and that you bless us as we go. In your name we pray. Amen.